Today, Israel will appear before the International Court of Justice to reject South Africa's allegation that it is committing genocide in Gaza. South Africa's court application says Israel's acts are genocidal in character, intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial and ethnical group. South Africa says the actions of the Israeli military are in breach of the 1948 Genocide Convention, an accusation that Israel vehemently denies. South Africa has made itself criminally complicit with Hamas's campaign of genocide against our people. It shares culpability for the tragic loss of human life. The State of Israel will appear before the International Court of Justice at The Hague to dispel South Africa's absurd blood libel. This is a hugely significant case. It's only the second time that a country has taken another country to the International Court of Justice under the so-called Erga Omnes obligation. That is, that all states that are parties to the 1948 Genocide Convention have a duty to prevent genocide. That's Shane Darcy, a law professor at the University of Galway and deputy director of the Irish Centre for Human Rights. On today's podcast, he'll help us understand the questions the court will have to consider in this incredibly sensitive case. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Hapollock. Today, what is genocide? And why is South Africa taking this case against Israel? Shane, can we start with you briefly defining the term genocide? So genocide is a it's an international crime. It's one of the so-called core international crimes. And we include the others would be war crimes, crimes against humanity, the crime of aggression. But genocide is the most, in some ways, well-established international crime. We can find it defined in the 1948 Genocide Convention. So what it is, effectively, is it's a series of, of criminal acts, killings, inflicting um, mental and bodily harm and various other acts done with an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. So it's been defined as the crime of crimes by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, such as the seriousness. It's about destroying a particular group. So it has those two, those two important components. Can we talk about a few examples to, to further our understanding, perhaps? We know that what happened to the Jewish people during the Holocaust was genocide, and we'll come back to that later. But people may have also heard of the Armenian genocide in the early 20th century or the Cambodian genocide in the 1970s. What about now in the 21st century? Is what Russia is doing in Ukraine considered genocide? So Russia argued itself that what Ukraine was doing to Russians in eastern Ukraine was genocide. And that was okay. part of the rationale it put forward as to why it invaded in uh, February of 2022. That claim has been, has been contested. Um, but we do have many historical examples. The Holocaust of the Second World War is what inspired the Genocide Convention. But if you look at the convention itself, it describes all periods of history. Genocide has afflicted great losses on humanity. Um, but since the Genocide Convention came into existence, we have seen prosecutions at international courts for a number of genocides. It's perhaps the most difficult crime to prove amongst the others that I already mentioned, such as war crimes and crimes against humanity. And what is the role of the International Court of Justice in a situation where genocide is alleged? 
So the International Court of Justice has a particular role. It's set out within the Genocide Convention itself. And it allows states that have a dispute between them concerning the interpretation or the application or the fulfillment of the 1948 Genocide Convention to take those complaints to the International Court of Justice. So it's states that can go to that court and initiate proceedings against other states. It doesn't put individuals on trial. And what's interesting is that it's not just states that might allege that they are victims or that their nationals have been the victims of genocide, um, but also other states who have an interest in preventing genocide, as all states have under the Genocide Convention, can initiate proceedings before the International Court of Justice. And that brings us to South Africa. So Shane, why is South Africa taking this case of genocide against Israel? What exactly is it alleging and on what grounds? Okay, so South Africa have made a very, very detailed um, submission to the International Court of Justice, alleging that Israel is in breach of its obligations under the 1948 Genocide Convention. The rationales that it's put forward uh, in its submission, one of which is that it as a state, South Africa, has a duty to prevent genocide. It also wants to put an end to what is taking place in Gaza in terms of what it alleges as amounting to, to genocide. It's alleging that Israel is in breach of its obligations under the Genocide Convention, that it is committing genocide, that it is failing to prevent genocide, and it's failing to prevent or punish incitement to genocide, which are particular offences under the Genocide Convention itself. And in terms of the evidence that it's putting forward, it's relying on UN reports, civil society reports, as well as accounts, eyewitnesses accounts that are being brought through journalists covering what's taking place in Gaza. And it's compiled a very, very detailed 84-page submission that is put forward to the court and that will be considered in the coming, in the coming days. South Africa has made a request for provisional measures to be ordered by the International Court of Justice for a ceasefire. Can you explain what power the ICJ has here? What sort of provisional measures can it order? And must Israel comply with such an order? So to answer your second question first, well, provisional measures are binding on parties to a, to a contentious case before the International Court of Justice. Whether states comply with them is another matter. We can maybe come back to that in a while. But provisional measures are, they're like an injunction. They're like a, a request by the court for the parties of effectively to pause, to maintain in the, in the language of the, of the court statute. It's to make sure that the rights of the parties are not further harmed. So it's a sort of a, a request by the court pending a full and detailed consideration of the case that the parties suspend what is what is taking place. So South Africa has made a, a long, has listed, I think, nine different provisional measures that they're asking for the court to issue. But the court has, has discretion here. It's not bound to issue the provisional measures that have been requested of it, but it may, it may well do so. So the first is that uh, South Africa is asking the court um, to issue a provisional measures order that the state of Israel shall immediately suspend its military operations in and against Gaza. Now, in the Ukraine versus Russia case, the court did issue a provisional measures order asking Russia to cease its military operations. Now, even though that case was taken under the Genocide Convention, 
It was a slightly different case, but there is some precedent then for the court making this sort of order. In the Myanmar versus Gambia case, we also had provisional measures issued by the court, such as in relation to allowing access to independent observers, etc. And those are echoed in what in what South Africa have done. So they've very carefully tracked what the court has previously done when it comes to provisional measures in what they're requesting of the court. And how has Israel responded to all this so far? So the initial responses were very, very hyperbolic, you know, very severe criticism from uh, Israeli uh, political leaders denouncing the taking of this case as being a blood libel, as being anti-Semitic. So very, very harsh criticism uh, of South Africa going to the International Court of Justice in this in this context. But we have seen news accounts as well that Israel is taking this quite seriously and has been writing to its diplomatic core, trying to make the case that you know this is a this is a problematic thing and we need to we need to counteract it, etc. But unlike previous um, proceedings that involved Israel before the ICJ. There was an ICJ advisory opinion from 20 years ago. Here, Israel is actually going to appear before the court mm-hmm. and it's appointed a team of lawyers who are going to represent it. It's appointed an ad hoc judge who will sit on the bench. Um, we're not sure yet what the legal arguments will be, but we'll see those in the in the coming days. I suspect the lawyers are not going to make the sort of political denunciations that were done by the by the politicians in recent days. They'll probably argue more technical jurisdiction type questions before the court. Um, but it is significant. Russia didn't participate in the proceedings in Ukraine versus versus Russia. But Israel is taking a different a different approach here. Now, South Africa has said statements by Israeli officials express genocidal intent. And it's true that leaked official Israeli intelligence documents have revealed that some members of government are pushing for all Gazans to be moved to the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. And Israel has destroyed more than a third of Gaza's homes, making parts of the Strip totally uninhabitable. Some say this is all part of Israel's plan for the total destruction and erasure of Gaza. But does that amount to genocide? Because Israel itself insists it's targeting Hamas, not the citizens of Gaza. Yeah, so ultimately it's going to fall on the court to make that determination as to whether the actions that have taken place fall within the Genocide Convention, killing members of the group, causing seriously bodily or mental harm, or deliberately inflicting conditions of life that are calculated to bring about its destruction. So in South Africa's submission, they go through each of these so-called actus reus or physical elements in quite great detail, demonstrating the thousands of uh, civilians that have been killed. And there is a very, very high civilian death rate, looking also at the numbers of injuries and the various other measures that have been taken. In particular, of course, the denial of access to food, medicine, fuel, electricity, etc., which they argue falls under this third a category of deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life that will bring about its destruction. But they need to look at those also in the context of, of so-called genocidal intent. Um, and South Africa's submission contains a detailed, I think, seven or eight pages running through not just the, the, the example that you gave us, but of coming from the prime minister, Netanyahu, right through to other politicians, military commanders, etc., talking about the destruction of Gaza or the destruction of of Hamas or destruction of Palestinians by using certain language that may be coded, etc. And it will be for the court to determine if this amounts to genocidal intent. That's the that's often 
where the court finds in, in previous instances where it may find that a case doesn't amount to genocide. Now here we see quite open comments about effectively displacing the population of Gaza, whether it's within Gaza or perhaps even outside of Gaza. And that's something that has also been a feature of other conflicts. Uh, and it's something that other courts have had to have had to grapple with. Is the intent to remove the population from a territory or is it to destroy the population? Or in some instances, you may see both happening. Here in Ireland, Taoiseach Leo Farragher says the government does not intend to join the South Africa case and that there is a need to be very careful in defining genocide. He said war crimes have very possibly been committed on both sides of the conflict, but also that Jewish people understand very well what genocide is from their families' experiences during the Second World War. Now, Ireland has been one of the most vocal opponents of Israel's war on Gaza since October. So why do you think, Shane, the government has decided not to join this case? So when we say join, there's actually a few different ways that that, that is being understood. Um, so at the International Court of Justice, it's actually quite rare to have more than one country taking a case uh, against another. They're usually bilateral cases between two between two states. We do recently have a case taken by Canada and the Netherlands against Syria relating to, to torture. Um, but other cases tend to be bilateral. Um, so we don't really see states coming together to take these to take these cases. But what we have seen, and I think this may be why um, the Taoiseach has been asked about this question, is that countries have intervened uh, in cases, which is to say they've made submissions to the courts raising or trying to address particular legal questions that they may have concerns about how those are being argued by parties to the case and then what the court's you know findings might be on that. So Ireland did intervene in the case between Ukraine versus Russia. So it made arguments concerning the understanding of what a dispute is under the Genocide Convention as well as what the duty to prevent genocide entails. Um, but of course, what this means then, and if we uh, if we look at the International Criminal Court also, Ireland was one of 40 states that referred the situation in Ukraine to the International Criminal Court, is that people say, well, there's a double standard at play here. Why is the country intervening in one state or making a referral in another situation and not in this particular and not in this particular instance? I want to jump back to what Leo Varadkar said. Isn't he actually correct that... Jewish people and the people of Israel should have a far more inherent and deep understanding of genocide and what it means than most other people on this planet. I mean, I I don't I don't disagree with that. Of course, I mean the Holocaust is perhaps the most significant. It is, I would say, the most significant of the genocides that have that have taken place. It's unparalleled in in many ways. Um, but I was struck when I was researching on 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 the Genocide Convention that Raphael Lemkin, who is who was a Polish Jewish lawyer who coined the term genocide, when he was asked why did he why did he push for a genocide convention, he said because it has happened so many times. So clearly, the idea underlying the Genocide Convention is that it is not to be tied solely to what happened during the Second World War, but rather it has a future application. And there have, of course, been victims of other genocides since then, and their suffering, perhaps not on the scale that we saw during the Second World War, is, is no less for that reason. Coming up, 
What are the parallels between today's war in Gaza and the Bosnian genocide 30 years ago? I continue my conversation with Professor Shane Darcy. Shane, you wrote an article in this paper on Monday where you drew striking parallels between the present conflict in Gaza and the violence in Bosnia in the 1990s, which we've already referenced. That is internationally recognised as genocide. Can you remind us what happened in Bosnia in the mid-1990s and how the military assault by Bosnian Serb forces was judged to have amounted to genocide? So when we look at the conflict in in, in the Balkans, in Bosnia, it was the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. And there was a number of conflicts that took place within that territory during that time. Um, but when we talk about genocide, it's not a concept that applied to the entirety of the conflict. The judicial determinations that we've seen from the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and from the International Court of Justice have concluded that genocide took place in Srebrenica alone. There have been other claims that there was genocide taking place during that conflict. So Croatia, for example, took Serbia to the International Court of Justice, but they didn't succeed in their in their genocide claim. So much of the violence, much of the atrocities that we saw were categorized as amounting to war crimes or amounting to crimes against humanity. As I mentioned earlier, in the context of Srebrenica, you had this campaign of ethnic cleansing pursued by Bosnian Serb forces, and during the course of which 8,000 military-aged men and boys were were extrajudicially executed, and that component of that military assault was was viewed as amounting to as amounting to genocide. So, what similarities do you see between what happened in Bosnia nearly 30 years ago and what's happening in Gaza today? I mean, the situation in Gaza and Palestine more generally is quite distinct from what took place in in the former Yugoslavia, because we have, and this is something that South Africa set out in their in their submission, we have a much longer context in terms of, um, we talk about decades long military occupation, etc., a system of apartheid, which South Africa have, have mentioned in, in their submission. But what struck me in looking at, at them, at particularly the situation in Srebrenica, was the imposition of what they described as creating a situation that was intolerable, that almost held out no hope for survival or life. So it was kind of this engineered situation that would force people to flee from the territories in question. And they did that by restricting access uh, of humanitarian aid and by blocking blocking convoys. And that was quite striking with, mm. with what taking place today, as well as coupled with, with the military assault, attacks on civilian property and the killing of, of civilians. What struck me, of course, is the similarities, but also the differences. The response of the UN Security Council during this period of crisis 30 years ago was condemnation of the atrocities that were taking place, Mm. demands for ceasefires, imposition of sanctions, establishment of an international court to be able to investigate and hold people to account. Whereas today we see the Security Council has been hamstrung by the US veto and has not taken measures that you would expect with to take when you see clear, clear commissions of, of, of violations of international law. Now, the United States has accused nations of throwing the word genocide around in inappropriate ways. And they say it's Hamas who is guilty of perpetrating genocide, not Israel, that Hamas want to wipe Israel off the map. And 
This is according to a White House spokesman, John Kirby. He said, Israel is not trying to wipe the Palestinian people off the map. Israel is not trying to wipe Gaza off the map. Israel is trying to defend itself against a genocidal threat. South Africa's filed this 84-page lawsuit against Israel, accusing them of genocide. Israel says that this is blood libel. Does Washington agree? And where does this put Washington and Pretoria? We find this uh, submission meritless, counterproductive, and uh, completely without any basis in fact whatsoever. What are your thoughts on his comments? I mean, I think they're emblematic in some ways of the sort of unwavering support we see from the United States towards Israel in this context. And as I just mentioned, that manifests itself with the veto at the UN Security Council on things like calling for a ceasefire. I mean, there's no doubt on the 7th of October that Hamas committed, and others, there was other armed groups and, and civilians involved as well, committed mass atrocities. I think there's no, there's no question about that. And South Africa, in their submission, condemned those violations that have, have taken place. Um, quite readily, they could be described as war crimes or crimes against humanity. Again, if we consider should it be qualified as genocide, you know, there may be individuals that harbor genocidal intentions and, and targeted individuals as Israelis or as Jews. And I have little doubt that an Israeli court that might prosecute such individuals could make a plausible case, plausible case for genocide. If we come back to the United States position, I mean, if they are convinced that this is the case, then they should allow for investigations and prosecutions. Um, they have not supported the work of the International Criminal Court in this particular context. When the United States alleged that genocide was taking place in Darfur and Sudan, they referred the situation to the International Criminal Court and asked the court to investigate uh, um, and prosecute those particular crimes. And the court issued an arrest warrant for the president of Sudan, uh, alleging the crime of, of genocide. So the US has been critical of these proceedings coming before the International Court of Justice, but many others have taken a different view and have supported uh, the court being used in this particular way. So Shane, this case will begin today. How do you expect it to play out and who will be attending? So I, this will probably be the most closely closely watched cases before the International Court of Justice in many years. I think that's a reflection of the atrocities that we've seen being perpetrated over the course of the past three months. I think it'll be watched very closely by the world's media, but also by the diplomatic corps. So in attendance at the court, you'll have South Africa will have a large de delegation. Israel will have a delegation, high-ranking politicians, and they'll have their legal teams participating um, and making the cases. So how it will play out is each of the teams will have a number of hours to make the cases to the court as to why it should accept uh, jurisdiction in this particular case, why there's a dispute between the two parties, and then in South Africa's case, what the provisional measures that it's seeking to take place. The judges, and there will be 15 of them, as well as the, the appointed South African and Israeli judge, tend to be quite passive at these early stages. There won't be a lot of interventions from the bench, I would suspect. It'll sort of be anticlimactic in some ways because the judges won't make any initial determination. But what will happen in the course of the coming weeks is that they will then, I would expect, issue an, an order for provisional measures. 
In the case of Ukraine versus Russia, that came within a few weeks. In the case of Myanmar and Gambia, it came within a couple of months. South Africa have stressed the urgency given the continuing crisis that's unfolding. So you would expect that the court would would act quickly. What impact, if any, can it have on what's happening right now each day in Gaza? Yes, I mean, international courts generally are not are not the the vehicle for solving or putting an end to to situations of conflict. States historically have not wanted them to have that role. So when the Geneva Conventions were adopted in 1949, the states then deliberately didn't give a role to the International Court of Justice to be able to step in. They said judicial matters can come come later. So it's often the political bodies that are seen as playing a role in, in bringing conflict to an end. The UN Security Council has a role in maintaining international peace and security, but the Security Council, the, the power of veto that rests with the five permanent members, and I see that the Ireland, Ireland's representative at the UN yesterday called for the veto to be abolished, have prevented that taking place. So we may see that the, the International Court of Justice issues a provisional measures order that calls for uh, a cessation of, of hostilities. Um, it may couch it in terms related to the genocide convention, so it may call for a cessation of hostilities that may amount to or give rise to a risk of genocide, for example. Um, will Israel adhere to that? I mentioned earlier that we had a previous case at the International Court of Justice, a so-called advisory opinion related to the construction of the wall, which the court found to have been constructed in violation of international humanitarian law and calling upon Israel effectively to, to cease that unlawful conduct, etc. Israel didn't abide by that particular ruling. Russia didn't abide by the provisional measures order that the court handed down, but that has contributed to Russia having somewhat of a pariah status. And I think what's significant in this instance is that Israel has is acutely aware of the, the potential impact of the case. We saw their attorney general in the past couple of days issue a notice warning that incitement to genocide is a criminal offence in domestic Israeli law may have been triggered by the ICJ proceedings. But as well, the Genocide Convention doesn't just talk about incitement or committing genocide, but it also talks about complicity. And genocide is a crime, but it's also an internationally wrongful act. And states have an obligation not to aid or assist internationally wrongful acts. So you may have allies of Israel, those that provide it with weapons, etc., who will be watching this very intently thinking, does this now put us in legal jeopardy if the court makes a finding or at least an indication? So, for example, France, Germany and the United Kingdom, under the Arms Trade Treaty, have an obligation not to transfer weapons to a country where there is a risk that international crime such as genocide is taking place. And this is something that the court's provision measures order could certainly indicate. Professor Shane Darcy, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Orga. That's all for today. For more reporting on the war in Gaza, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sarah Chapalak. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.